You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another fabulous episode of Dear Multi-Hyphenate. I'm your host, Michael Kushner. And I'm so excited you're joining me for this wonderful episode of Dear Multi-Hyphenate featuring Jay Rodriguez. Um, this is very exciting to have Jay because this marks uh, the second original cast member of Queer Eye, <laughs> which is totally um, like a little fangirl moment because I grew up watching that show and it was so like formative for my, you know, 13 year old little gay boy self, which is amazing. And uh, we get into that and the, the meaning behind it. But also we talk about Jay's upcoming show, A Thousand Sweet Kisses, which sounds so exciting and interesting. And of course, we discuss the... Um, the complicated uh, layers of being an artist, a multi-hyphenate artist, especially when you're known for something so uh, so specific like Queer Eye. So if you're an artist that um, is sort of maybe being pigeonholed into the industry for a, a very specific thing that you do and you're wondering how to branch out, Jay's uh, experience is really, really interesting. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. But first, uh, some housekeeping stuff. I'm going to try to keep this intro short. Um... You know, I don't have <laughs> right now. I don't have the most brain space for for many things. I'm feeling very overwhelmed, and you know, I'm going to be very honest, sad about the state of the world and uh, social media. You know, seeing things on social media, how misinformation spreads. Um, there's so much unrest right now, but us as artists, um, we have to just keep creating. Art is protest and uh you know i'm very i'm very proud to be jewish i love my jewish culture i love my jewish heritage and you know it's possible to keep two things part of the conversation to hold the two things true um you know what especially when it comes to oppressive government but also terror uh, an act of terror is never is never okay um and both things can be true at this at the same time. And this is a very nuanced conversation, but I'm not seeing a lot of nuance happen on um, on social media. And it's hurtful. It hurts. It's doing a lot more hurt than it is helping. So please, you know, be impeccable with your word. It's one of the four agreements, isn't it? Be impeccable with your word. Um, and, uh, you know, try not to contribute to people hurting. Try to Try to be the helper, what Mr. Rogers says, right? Look for the helpers. Be a helper. I'm also doing, uh, you know, strike sale 
the strike rates right now while we're on strike. Um, so I'm doing a bunch of different rates. Uh, so if you want headshots or portraits at Michael Kushner Photography, head on to www.michaelkushnerphotography.com and submit to learn more about the rates, learn more about how you can have some fun in the studio. Um, and also, you know, this episode is brought to you by Swoveralls. I'm recording in Swoveralls. I, uh, I live in Swoveralls. I go to events in Swoveralls. I go out in Swoveralls. I work in Swoveralls. I lounge in Swoveralls. It, they're sweatpant overalls, and they are absolutely incredible. And they have pockets. They have pockets, and they come in so many different great colors and textures, and they're just the best. Um, and if you want to get Swoveralls, and be cool like me and my husband Remy. Head to swoveralls.com and use my code Michael20 and uh, take some pictures in them while you're listening to the podcast. Uh, why not, right? All right, let's get into the episode. Remember, be kind, be careful, and be yourself. That's what my grandma always tells me, so I'm telling you be kind, be careful, and be yourself. Maybe I should end every episode like that starting soon because we're on the 100th episode and that means you know new chapter anyway jay rodriguez is an emmy award winner and broadway vet and he returns home to new york after 17 years with his new cabaret show a thousand sweet kisses chronicling his hilarious journey through love sex and relationships best known as the culture guy in the groundbreaking original queer eye theater audiences first met jay at the age of 18 when he played angel and rent making him the youngest person ever cast in a leading role in that show while in new york city jay appeared at lincoln center in spinning into butter as carmen Gia in the producers and as Zana in the cult classic Zana don't while performing eight shows a week, Jay became a fixture in nightlife with his popular postmodern pop cabaret night at XL called Twisted Cabaret. Since then, Jay has become a regular fixture in TV and film, guest starring on shows like Grey's Anatomy, The Rookie, The Magicians, How I Met Your Mother, Fantasy Island, and as the scene-stealing Jeffrey in Malibu Country, opposite Reba and Lily Tomlin, to name a few. Most recently, Jay was on the Judd Apatow film Bros, and is in Uncoupled, which is about to shoot its second season. A Thousand Sweet Kisses is a hilarious and touching musical cabaret featuring Broadway and pop classics, as well as never-before-told behind-the-scenes stories. Each night will feature a different surprise guest duetting I'll Cover You from Rent with Jay. And those guests are the incredible Claiborne Elder, Orfe, and Dan Amboyer. I can't wait to be there. Uh, and also, listen to the episode, and if you get your ticket take a picture of it, send it to Jay, and you might get a special treat, but you got to listen to the episode to figure out what that is. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, enjoy. Please rate, comment, subscribe, share with your friends and family, uh, and if you want to work with me privately, I do private private uh, meets and chats, career building. Uh, you can email me um, at dearmultihyphenate at gmail.com if you want to be on the podcast, too, or if you want to... Uh, uh, introduce me to someone that should be on the podcast as well, which I've had many people do. Follow on social media at the Michael Kushner or at Dear Multi-Hyphenate and be in touch. Please let me know what you're thinking of these episodes and uh, post about it. You know, word, word of mouth is, is really, really helpful. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Hey, Jai Rodriguez. <laughs> <laughs> 
How are you? <laughs> I'm good. That's an inside joke, dear listener, because no one ever gets my name right, but we already cleared that up uh, prior to this interview. But yes, you know what's so funny? Carson from Queer Eye started calling me Jai, and I think he calls me Jai more than he calls me Jay, deliberately. That's funny. I mean, yeah. I love that I'm we have... I love that we have our first inside joke and that's amazing. Um, but also Carson is a, uh, was a guest on your multi-hyphenate as well, which was really exciting. He really is multi-hyphenate. And I think when you um, have a forward-facing career, you're not really in control of who sees what. Um, and so you maybe on your socials may pepper in pictures of your other things that sort of drive you but it doesn't always stick in the viewer's mind the way the biggest thing you ever did sticks. Ain't that the truth. It's it's so interesting because it's like, I've been in the industry 23 years. I started as a child actor <clears throat> and now I have nodes apparently. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started as a child actor and I, you know, I genuinely thought like, wow, I am going to be an actor and I am an actor. It's not that I'm not, but I really just thought that I was going to only be an actor, even though I really love doing other things like uh, producing in my own ways from, you know, in when I'm 12 years old, what does producing mean when you're 12 years old? But, um, but producing and, and filming and photography and, and writing my own things. Like I, I have the skills cause I've been practicing them as just as much as I've been an actor. But when we're younger, um, I think, well, at least when we were younger, there were a lot more role, role models that, um, sort of did just one thing, but my role models were always the people that were multi-infinites or all multi-infinites like, like Mel Brooks, right? Like one of the best, but I think what's really cool about where you sort of fall in the lexicon of TV film and the Broadway crossover is that when we were exposed to you with Queer Eye, um, you were using a an aspect of yourself, a proficiency of yourself that wasn't really the same proficiency that you used as Angel in Rent or in uh, Xana Don't. And uh, I think that's really cool that you were brought to our homes using that proficiency. What was that like for you uh, when when you were hired for Queer Eye to be hired for something that maybe you hadn't led with ever in a professional setting? Yeah, thanks for that question. And the framing of it is really interesting because um, you know, whatever you think while listening to this that you know about Queer Eye, erase it. Because when I was on Queer Eye, it was a new concept creating a new genre. We had makeover shows, we had trading spaces and things like that, but something that would view the participant and have a payoff where the hosts or guides or experts would kind of teach them something and we could watch, that was new with us. And when I came into audition for it, there was no clear description that mirrored what the actual job was. They couldn't say, hey, this is like that show, but just we're doing it this way. There was really nothing like it. I think I heard it's kind of like The View, it's five different people and you're all openly gay, and but you're like, you know, it's got the the speed and superpowerness of like a Charlie's Angel. So there were no references that were clear. And when I first auditioned, how it was pitched was nightlife expert. 
very different than where we landed. You know, the gentleman who did the role before me, because I, um, I was not in the pilot and I didn't shoot the first two episodes that Bravo made. So that's three episodes that I wasn't in. And there was other folks for that. And I knew coming in that I was auditioning for replacing someone. I didn't know the circumstances, but it was unclear how and what, and how would I get this information in the title culture? What was my job? Was I meant to be a Puerto Rican Emily Post? Because via the network and producers, there were rules. After a while, I needed to give the guy something physical to do. Whereas in the new version, sometimes Karama will have this really powerful conversation and that's the segment. And it might be highlighted with some kind of physicality, but you know, for me, it was like, he needs to physically hand the straight guy something. And so there are all these kind of rules and parameters, mm -hmm. but within that, I, the dossier we received on the straight guy, I could look at him and be like, yeah, he needs a haircut or see his house and be like, yeah, we need to paint those walls, put that away, organize this, maybe go to Crate and Bear, whatever we were doing. <laughs> you know, you can kind of ask someone, you could take pictures of their kitchen. Um, you're informed is, I guess, my point about the other person. You look in their closet, you know where their fashion stands. Um, with my category, how could a producer go in and question someone and find deficits that somehow fell under the broad term of culture. And while they were struggling to navigate that, I was struggling to sort of navigate what my job was because it changed every week. I did everything from a lot of romantic dates, but how that looked was sometimes, you know, a guy would give a, a girl a henna arm uh, hand tattoo, or, you know, uh, one guy was really into taxidermy. One guy was an artist. So I set him with an art gallery opening, uh, doing proposals, doing, there was all kinds of stuff that was non-linear. And I think I had the most varied uh, category on that show. I never knew each week what I couldn't predetermine. I'm definitely going to do this with a straight guy because sometimes they didn't need certain things or they were proficient in some areas and had deficits in others. So, you know, for me, getting Queer Eye and getting to challenge myself to learn new skills in a way that would elevate what they were already doing was the work. And I think being 10 years younger than my castmates, um, there was a sense of trying to also find my voice in a group of very strong men who, um, had 10 years more lived experience. But once we got into our rhythm, I think we figured out how to entertain on one hand while also doing the actual work of informing the hero, the straight guy, and also the audience giving takeaways and such. Um, but it wasn't uh, a deliberate decision on my part. I really thought it was gonna be nightlife expert and for context. I did eight shows a week in a Broadway show called Rent, but on my off night, I created this top 40 night that had Broadway in it as well. So think gay Justin Timberlake, is, and then you've nailed it. St uh, cisgender gay men were not allowed in my, my time in New York, 2000, to perform at this one club. They said, we only hire drag queens who sing and diva females. That's it. And you know, a boy who's not in drag is not going to bring in an audience. And I begged and pleaded to have this night. And I created this night while doing eight shows a week. It was called Twisted Cabaret Mondays. And I had a 
four-piece cover band, three background singers, sometimes dancers, special guest stars. And that was when I was 21. And I did that all the way up and through parts of Queer Eye um, when then Shoshana Bean replaced me because I couldn't juggle all of it. However, one of the things that I think about at that time was the moxie I had and the, the drive to constantly be doing something that was different than Queer Eye because I felt the need to continue to do the things I was passionate about and maybe that the world had yet to see. That's amazing. Um, so, you know, around that time, you know, like the two early 2000s and stuff like that, it was the audience, oh. the, the audience, the, the industry was so rigid. As, you know, we as a culture were still very rigid in terms of gender and sexuality. Like Queer Eye was so important because that was like the first time I mean, yeah, there was Will and Grace, but that was scripted and pretty stereotypical in a lot of different yeah, ways. Will and Grace, Queers Folk, L Word, the dating show Boy Meets Boy, which was a little problematic. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we were off the heels of that and welcomed. I think the biggest point about Queer Eye is we were welcomed into homes. Yes. Welcomed is the key word. In households that would not vote for marriage equality. Right. So we were like, you can come in we love you. We want to be your friend. Please don't kiss in front of us. Please don't try to marry. Um, I think separate but equal was what they were kind of trying to give us. And I think at that time, it was, a, a here's what it did. It cracked the door open for the folks who came after us in the past 20 years to continue to push um, that door more and more open. Um, but I remember that time very well because those were my formative years. So there's a lot of people who talk about that era in the early 2000s and mm -hmm. skirt over a lot of the nuance that is my lived experience. That's just like what I know. And so um, so I have paid special attention to the things that happened because I, I haven't seen one documentary that accurately depicted my experience as an out queer person in the early 2000s and in media. And, and having some kind of level of fame or sparkle. You know, in my household, Queer Eye was used, I think, as a way for my family to be like, it's okay, we know you're gay and we love you and we're gonna, we're gonna like create a safe space where we're gonna watch the show together. And, you know, Judge started becoming a daily part of our, you know, I come from a liberal Jewish family. So like, we have our words anyway, but like, we, you were you were in our house so i think as a as a, not just entertainment which of course you guys were so entertaining but i think just to really normalize the um the gay experience and, well, and too, to add to that sorry to cut you off but no, i no please I, I think what what i would love to share is we didn't know we right. were doing something impactful we yeah. also did not know we were doing a show with any kind of emotions that would be evoked other than laughter and comedy. Why? We had comedy directors. We had people who directed sitcoms. Our show was supposed to be funny. Us being authentic and leaning into the connection we formed with the hero or the straight guy that episode or person, because we made over trans men and women and all that too, but um, that is where the five guys, their humanity showed, and that connection that is built with someone that day one is like, whoa, whoa, hey, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm not gay, you know, to the final day where the producer steps in and says, okay, the guys have reminded you what you need to do tonight. 
they're leaving. You're never going to see them again. Is there anything you want to say? And they would always start the same way. And this took us by surprise. They would say, well, you know, I just, and they would start to cry. And the first guy that did it, we laughed because we thought he was mocking us. And it took us a beat to realize this was real. This was the first time anything like this had been done in this way. Yeah. And so we didn't play for tears or emotions or heartstrings. Those were an organic byproduct of just connecting with someone on a heart level, regardless of who we choose to love or how we identify. And I think that is the thing that um, audiences might be surprised with, to know is that we really just thought we were making a, a show for people to laugh with no agenda at all. Oh. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I, I say that multi-hyphenates multi are artists who have multiple proficiencies which cross-pollinate. So when you were done with Queer Eye, I mean, you said that you were still, you know, producing Top 40 Nights while you were doing Queer Eye and then Shoshana took over. But while you were doing Queer Eye, how did these moments, how did your experiences with Queer Eye carry on to your next projects? Like, how did that affect, how did you cross-pollinate? So let's go back. 18, I get hired to play Angel and Rent. Uh, I thought you were going to say 1864. No, I was yeah. like, you're not that old. Like, yeah, it was 1860. <laughs> um, no, I was 18, youngest person ever cast in a leading role. I do that show for like a year and a half. I do a movie. I leave. I do a soap playing a, a you know straight father. I literally look like a child, but I'm playing a straight dad and all my children. <laughs> And then, you know, I'm, I leave and do a play about racism on a college campus at Lincoln Center, and I'm the central character uh, that kind of pivots the show's narrative about microaggressions in 2001. Then I go off to do an off-Broadway musical, take a six-month leave from Rent called Xana Don't, where I play Xana, who's sort of this non-binary character. In 2003, during the day I'd shoot Queer Eye and at night I would go do this off-Broadway musical called Xana Don't. And then so for me, I was so used to juggling and all the while doing this Excel Twisted Cabaret um, show. So I, I was always juggling a million different jobs. My friend used to tease me like, you're such a Puerto Rican, you got 16 jobs. I <laughs> loved it that way. But generally early on, it was because one job didn't pay enough, which leads me to Queer Eye because I was making $400-ish a week doing Xana Don't. How do you live for six months in New York on that salary? So I had my XL night and when this TV opportunity came, I didn't care that I had to be openly gay. I took a pause because I was like, well, shit. Now, like when I, ooh, I don't know if I can curse. Sorry about that. Oh, please. Okay, so when I walk into rooms, people may know, but also Bravo was not the Bravo people know today. Nobody was watching Bravo inside the actor's studio and Bravo, like encore of old Tom Cruise movies. So it really put Bravo on the map and Bravo is owned by its parent company, NBC Universal. So they played us right after Will and Grace at the beginning of our um, sort of emergence. And that kind of took the show into a whole new direction. So for me, Queer Eye ends. We don't know for sure but we end magically on episode 100. And if you're TV savvy, you know, now they can package the show and sell it to another cable affiliate or whatever for syndication. So we soft, sort of soft new, okay, we're done. This is July, 2006. I get a call from Simon Cowell's production company. Hey, we have the show. It's like Dancing with the Stars, but singing. We have a bunch of celebrities and each week they get paired with a musical superstar. 
you're competing um, for your favorite charity, but also you get paid X amount. And I had no work after Queer Eye planned. And so I went, came to LA to do the show. I didn't have a license. I still had my place back in New York. I was here for two months shooting the show and I loved it. And so what I did was, was basically have my things boxed and shipped and driven cross country uh, for the service and walked from the hotel I was staying in around the neighborhood, found a for rent sign, moved in, slept on an air mattress till my things were brought here. And after Queer Eye, I had a really difficult road because mm -hmm. I had introduced myself, as I previously said, as a Puerto Rican Emily Post. Every guy on Queer Eye, except me, showcased what he was best at. They're the ones that got the million dollar endorsement deals. They're the ones who got offers for their genre of other TV shows. That didn't happen for me. So when I moved here and I was off the singing show, I got to do the things I always wanted to do. I could not ever get a tattoo in Rent or Queer Eye. You had to ask permission. And the answer was usually no. Couldn't grow my facial hair because of the role on Rent. And then Queer Eye said no. So eight years of being sort of controlled about your aesthetic, I got to lean into who are you outside of your job and your profession. And when I started to you know, want to transition back to being an actor, not necessarily a makeover person, um, it was a difficult road. No one would see me. They saw me as a novelty. I was that guy who did a reality show and now is trying to be mm. an actor. They were negating that I'd gone to performing arts high school, getting the education I would have gotten freshman, sophomore year in college. They had forgotten that my half a decade in rent, my play at Lincoln Center opposite Hope Davis, you know, directed by a Tony Award winning director, no singing, just acting, really heavy content, originating the role of Zena. None of it mattered here in LA, none of it. And I had to start over from scratch and reintroduce myself, grew up my beard the way I wanted it, got the tattoos I wanted. For a full year and a half, I want to say, I James Deaned my wardrobe. I wore a white t-shirt and jeans, and I just changed my sneakers, and here's why. I did it at home with Jay in the closet kind of thing for in, uh, was it Us Weekly? And the stylist who comes and makes your closet pretty and camera ready was like, you know what's funny about you? It's like you have a bunch of costumes, and based on who you want to be that day, you put on a costume. Normally, when I go into someone's closet, I get a really good sense of who they are. And that stuck with me. And it resonated because she was right. She was right. I was cosplaying all these different archetypes that I was supposed to be. Am I supposed to be the sassy gay that performs at a pride? Am I supposed to be the business professional that is an Emmy Award winner and New York Times bestseller? Like, who am I today? And is it okay for me to dress differently than people who fall into that category. At that time, I didn't think so. So I had like adult clothes and then like gay bar clothes and there was very little in between. And so I took a year just like with the sans fashion and tried to figure out who I was. And it took a long time to, and I, I'm still reintroducing myself, um, but it took a long time. I mean, Ryan Murphy gave me my first scripted role. I had to audition, obviously, um, in, on one of his first series, Nip Tuck. And I had mm -hmm. a big guest star on that. That opened a lot of doors. Because even if you didn't see the episode, you now saw, oh, he just had a big guest star on a hot show. I'll call him in for that. But more, I just want to meet him and you know talk to him. Because I used to love Queer Eye. I'm talking as the casting director. I would go in and I knew exactly why I was there. They were fans because the way they'd fangirl before the audition. And 
after a while, I kept getting callbacks from the same, you know, casting directors and building a, a resume and became the first guy who garnered fame off reality to become series regular on a scripted show with a series I did called Malibu Country. But all the while, you have massive gaps in employment. So what are you going to do? How are you going to make money? You go back to how you started. You become multi-hyphenated in a, in a more active way where you're seeking out things aggressively in different fields. Um, for me, that was public speaking. That was um, leaning into my cabaret stuff, which obviously we're going to talk about that in a little bit. My show's at 54 Below in October. But, you know, it was how do I make a living as who I am now and what are the things I need to do to set that in place so this isn't new information when people get pitched who I am. The, pa the pandemic, people streaming shows because they were bored came across a lot of work I had done that they'd never seen. Because mm -hmm. what do we do? You post on your social media once or twice and that's it. Like, And either you saw it or you saw it or you didn't see it. And people come up to me, I didn't know you were on Grey's Anatomy. I didn't know you were on The Magician. I didn't know you were on The Rookie. I didn't know, you know. I was on a date with someone and this was this year. And he was like, we're talking about what we do for a living. And I said, you know, I'm an entertainer. And he's like, oh, what kind? I broke it down. And he's like, would I've seen you on anything? And I started with the most recent. I was like, oh, I did this series called Uncoupled. And I'm in this movie called Bros. He's like, no, you're not. I saw Bros. You're not in that. And I was like, I am. I played Billy Eichner's love interest brother, Jason. He's like, the straight gamer? And it took him a minute because when you watch that movie, Queer Eye is not the first thing you think of when you see me playing that character. I like that. However, bold and brazen for Judd Apatow to take a chance and cast me. Listen, I understand that the movie featured an entirely LGBTQ plus cast. Would I have gotten that role if it was, you know, straight people and some queer people? I don't know. But I remember sending that tape in because we don't audition in person. We all self-taped. And I watched it and I was like, fuck, that's good. Like, that's good. And then I was immediately sad and angry because I thought no matter how good I am, Judd Apatow is never going to hire me for this. It's a broy straight guy. And even though that's what that looks like and that's what that is conveying in this audition, they're going to look at my resume and they're going to figure out I'm a big old gay. And I'm not going to be uh, allowed to play this part because that's what Hollywood used to be like and in many spaces still is. So when I got the call from my agent and manager, I pulled over and I involuntarily started to cry because I remember all the years. I'll tell you a quick anecdote and then I'm going to stop talking. But when the height of Queer Eye hit, the Queer Eye producers brought us into their agency because they wanted their agents to package all five of us so uh. that producers and cast would all be under the same roof and represented by the same agency. Now, I don't personally think that's ever a good idea based on my experience and my relationship with producers. I respect them, but they're not family. They have their interests <laughs> first and, the, and their family's interests first. I get that. So when I go in, I'm already like, I got an agent. I don't think this is going to be the vibe for me, but it was glamorous, high end. They had a full spread. They give us a soft pitch with all five of us. And then they give you an agent that would be possibly your point person. Mm -hmm. Mine said to me, so what do you see yourself doing? Like, tell me a bit about yourself. 
and I explained I was an actor, not just in gay roles, that I played this inner city student in this play at Lincoln Center and gotten rave reviews and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, kind of, and I just like, I, you know, I've done a little TV, all my children, I played straight guy there. So I don't want to be pigeonholed, whatever. And he looked at me blankly and said, well, I don't know what to tell you. You're not going to be the next Antonio Banderas. As Yikes. if that was the apex in his mind of what was possible. And if that was the apex, I was nowhere near it. And it would be impossible for me to succeed in this industry with those lofty ambitions and goals. And so at that time, I did not have the confidence I have now because in many ways, he was kind of right. He was basically saying the part that irritates me, I'm unwilling to change that and fight with you to change that. This is the status quo and I'm just being realistic, like that's not gonna happen for you. Instead of what I wanted to hear, which was, listen, you have the capacity to do this work and our, from our side, we're gonna push to get you in the rooms to showcase what you can do. And then I quickly pivoted because I was uncomfortable. <laughs> The other guys had gotten million dollar endorsement deals. And I was like, well, what about like commercial endorsements? Like everybody's got them now. And I haven't, he's like, look, I'm going to be honest. You're Latin, you're gay. You're somewhat, you know, a little more girly. I think he met like effeminate. He's mm -hmm. like, I just don't see you as like safe for brands. You know, I don't see a partnership in your future. And I held that for so many years, decades likely. And I remember when I got Malibu country, and I was like, I'm doing something. This is great. Still a gay role. But when I got the role in Bros, he was the first person I thought of. That conversation was the first thing I thought of. And many of the other straight roles I've played over the years, I, I think about him mm. because, you know, your detractors can be your, your motivation. And he was not wrong maybe for the time of what might have been possible previously. But I think what we're coming to discover is entertainers jobs is usually as an actor to reflect the human experience and there's many different kinds of humans out there whose stories are yet to be told or are continuously under told so that was a very long-winded listener if you're still here with us god bless you um long-winded way of giving you a, a sort of a window into how that queer experience has impacted my life and and stuff I could write books about all the things sure. I didn't know about Jay okay so yeah. that was just my my don't then I don't reference. You don't know who you're dealing with. You're dealing with a musical theater gay. Okay, so um, so much goodness. Let's, I got a few questions to ask you as soon as we're back from this break from our sponsors. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we're back. Um, the magic of editing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. Incredible, incredible things you just said. I, I can listen to you talk for forever. So I say, you know, multi-hyphenates are made primarily uh, of and I learned this from um, Tony nominee El Morgan Lee, who was on my panel at BroadwayCon um, on my live episode, which you have, if you haven't listened to that, uh, go, that's featuring El Morgan Lee and Marla Mandel, Al Silver, and Rachel Wright. And uh, I, no, I, I no longer say uh, marginalized communities. Uh, she offered, she put on the table, she said under-researched communities, and I, and I like that. So multi evidence are made primarily of under-researched communities. So members of the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, uh, um, uh, artists of color, uh, Jewish artists, so like whoever has had to fight their way to tell a story because a white oppressor is gatekeeping those ways of telling their stories that are primarily belong to under-researched um, communities uh, usually winds up becoming a multi-hyphenate because they have to write their own stories. They have to direct their own stories. They have to pitch them. They have to produce them. They have to build their teams to tell them. So this is a classic example of that. This is some, this is, we're, first of all, you were, you were faced with someone that was profiling you just because of who you are and the boxes that you check. And multi-hyphenating is all about it's all about exploding out of those boxes and being like, look what I can do. Look what, look what I look at all of my potential. I am limitless. And it's so beautiful. I mean, you know, we said at the beginning, it's like the, the privilege of just being able to do one thing, but think about all of the stories that you have told in so many different ways. And I just, you know, I watched Uncoupled a few months ago and it was such a great, such a great show and I loved seeing you in that and I loved seeing you in bros and you're right uh now that we're talking about bros and and the role that you played in it it was it's you are limitless and you are such a talent and it's so amazing that the world gets to see it but also got to know you um as a person as well and I think that's that's amazing so you know I you bring up something else and I'm when you were talking, I was like, so what's the lesson here? What is the lesson about what you're saying? And I think there's a lot of them, but primarily I think there's something that is always going to be in this industry, no matter how many times we try to um, believe that it's not going to be there, but there's always going to be a fight. Artists always are going to have to fight for themselves and advocate for themselves always, no matter what safe, space you create you're always going to have to advocate for yourself in in so many different ways i mean anyone could be a part of this industry and that's a good thing but there's also a bad thing of that is that anyone and all of their baggage and all of their uh their microaggressions can be a part of this industry and that can infiltrate and make or break a space and i think you know seeing this on social media a lot of younger actors sort of going on tiktok and instagram and sharing their frustrations with the industry i want to go did you think it was going to be easy what if you shift your expectations and listen to stories from you from myself that go you have to, we have to overcome things. We have to, we, 
we have to overcome things. I don't know. You look like you were going to say something, but please. No, I, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, is coming up for me when you're sharing all this is, you know, you talk about gatekeepers, you know, that comes in many different ways uh, or it presents itself in different ways, meaning people will think because they hired me, they've, they've now met their quota for inclusion and diversity. Mm -hmm. But in the role, they did not give me anything meaningful to do. They had me there to check a box. And that's how it very much used to be in the beginning of my career. Now, for me, I'm supposed to just be thrilled to have been invited. You can't really complain because they're like, well, a million other people would kill for this job. And I'm like, yeah. And people talk about inclusion and how it's gotten better. I'm like, check number one, two, three on the call sheet. What do they look like? Mm -hmm. Because it's very rare for me to see someone and it's changing, it's changing, but it's, but it's oftentimes if I do a project and it's like a queer project or a gay project or LGBT project, I pretty much know it's centered around a white person. Mm -hmm. And that's just been something that I, I'm, you know, the sidekick to the whatever. And that's been the majority of my career. There's been select moments and even the, the queer content creators, the storytellers who get the funding, who get to Outfest, who get the notoriety, they also will do this thing where they'll think of me for roles that are so beneath. And I'm saying it, I'm saying it this way because I'm going to follow it up beneath my sort of pedigree. Mm -hmm. They're giving me a role that would be great for a 22-year-old college student from Carnegie Mellon. Like, and that's not no tea, no shade. I've been doing this 26 years. And been marginalized by the entertainment community. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, even your own sometimes will continue to put you in a box and have you on their project just to say, look, but we got a Latin person here, you know, and then point to you and you're like, I had three things to say. And I did this as a favor. You're not even really paying me much. So, you know, it's, it's tricky because if we don't do better within our own community and the kind of stories we tell in green light, then how can we expect the gatekeepers who are looking at what we produce to take a page from that to, you know, center stories around us? There's a bunch of different, I just did uh, an episode, well, it just aired this year, but of a show called Fantasy Island. And it was about a, a group of friends, bachelor party, uh, going to Fantasy Island and every person gets, you know, the island grants them a wish. And my character came out in college and has been deathly afraid of everything ever since. And... It was the first time that a network, studio, whomever, billed me as a celebrity. They would do a trailer the week before with all these different names that were on this season. And they included me with my name on the screen. And that sounds weird to say, but when you're in the business for you know a quarter of a century, and that's the first time, you know, I've seen drag race girls go on shows and it's like special guest star. And I'm like, she did 12 episodes of, yes, a very popular show, but one series, you know, and that's no Tino shade. It's just certain people get a leg up in other ways because they're more relevant. And Billy Porter says it best. Trailblazers very rarely get to reap the benefits of the very trail they helped blaze. You make it easier for the people who came behind you, but the people who are behind you don't always remember to like give you a hand up either. So I've been really mindful and fortunate that I've, work with people that were older and have not forgotten about them along the way. When there's opportunities that arise, they're the first people I think of, the people who I know are super talented, but may not be at the tip of everyone's tongue today. Um, 
And you know, if you like someone in the in entertainment and you're thinking, God, I wonder where they are, whatever happened to them, they're probably still auditioning. They're probably still trying to get the gig. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you were saying gatekeepers, it just made me think it's not always straight white folk. It could be anyone who's learned only certain people can play this part. Because when I think of this, a doctor, uh, all American or whatever, it has to be whatever they think of. And very rarely, it's we're spending a little more of it now, does it reflect real life? Where like you go to a doctor's office and like it could be really anybody who's your doctor. You know what I mean? Like there's no there's no thing with that. And so there's there is differences, and I'm sure people are thinking of like grays, whatever. I'm just using this as an example. Mm-hmm. But there are some times where I get a queer script and I'm like, oh. <laughs> like I'm happy. I need the job. I'll take the job. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm at that place now. I had this conversation with Joel Kim Brewster about, you know, I I, I want to have my bros, you know, uh, Fire Island from the Latin Latinx perspective, mm-hmm. because I have not seen that story. I think that um, uh, with love on Amazon, for sure, um, I definitely felt like that for me, I was like, well, that's kind of that's me. Like I feel a little me in there, uh, my experience, um, but not many. And I, and I was talking about, I was like, I wish there was more. And he's like, you're of the right age. You have the right, uh, you know, bio and credits to become the creator of a series. And he's right. And and mm-hmm. that that moxie that I had back in the day where I was doing, you know, Queer Eye during the day, Xanadone uh, at theater time, and then going to a club to do, you know, 12 songs at, you know, Cabaret, all in one day. Sort of that drive of like, I'm not taking no for an answer is what I think I really want my future to look like because we can't, shake our fists at the sky and say, I want things to change a little bit. And by the way, I'm not saying to eradicate every white lead and everything. No, I'm just saying it would be nice every now and again to turn on the TV and see a character that kind of reflected a little bit more of my and my family and my friends' uh, life a little bit Mm -hmm. more. Um, Especially being Latin, I think, you know, we represent one of the highest populations in, in the U.S. and yet our stories are so undertold underfinanced mm-hmm. um you know people like Eva Longoria John Leguizamo have been you know sharing this for a long time um because they're high profile people listen but I don't know this necessarily know there's been a whole lot of change um but that's my perspective on it because the gatekeepers are are not necessarily always who we think they are I think there's a lot of queer gatekeepers that want to continue to tell a certain kind of gay experience and then i get cast on those shows and people blame me like i wrote it you know it's like there's a lot of great shows that i've been a part of you know i really love um being a part of uncoupled because of the age demographic Mm -hmm. i aged out of playing the gay bestie i'm too old i'm in my 40s now Mm -hmm. and so it's like that's not the role for me anymore but i was playing that archetype for a while um and just when you get to like oh offer only i don't have to audition because i've done so many of those then they're like, no, you're no longer that. But the idea of dating in your 40s, and I guess for Neil in his 50s, that was really interesting to me. And and season one was very centered around Neil's character and what was going on there. But the final episode unraveled all the supporting characters, um, the three other series regulars, their storylines, which I'm really interested to see because 
the cast is phenomenal from Tisha Campbell to Brooks to Emerson. Um, they're just really superior actors. I will say, Emerson Brooks, who's the um, who plays the weatherman, he happens to be black and gorgeous and ripped, is supposed to be the slut. And in all eight episodes, we had never seen him naked once. I was mad. We, I, we talked about this, he and I. I was like, dude, you're supposed to be the big hoe. You're super ripped. You happen to be a man of color. Why are we not writing you like some hoey stuff? Um, and we actually, I actually ran into the writer um, not a couple months ago. And he was like, I know. He's like, we actually watched it back. And we were like, oh, we probably need to show that. Anyway, Emerson's in the gym currently right now, prepping for that, for the nudity <laughs> be happening on season two on uncoupled whenever that happens after we get hopefully everything we need from the amptm after this strike um but till then we're still in the picket lines and who knows what the future will be which would be great and i hope really it ends soon because it's you know it's been it's been a time you know from the from the pandemic to this i mean i fully support the strike and obviously people have to be multifaceted right now because they're like well shit, I can't act anymore. How am well, I, you know, like my, listen, I have an Emmy in the corner of the room. Like literally like, Hey girl, right, I cannot show that to my landlord and say, so look, <laughs> I think I'm kind of a big deal. Uh, no, doesn't matter. Have you ever I've seen the done... Emmys. <laughs> what? Have you ever seen the Emmy awards? I want to hold my Emmy. Can I count as rent this month? Um, no, no, no. But I, I but I, but I think, I think the, uh, the conversation around what people make in entertainment I was very, I felt um, really good about because a lot of people that are big stars are talking about how they're struggling to pay their mortgage and knowing what I make per episode, um, which is this new term they call top of show, sometimes it's minimally what they have to pay you. Right. And it's not a lot. And then you have to wait like three or four months till you possibly get another guest star. Like it's not what people think it was. So when people see me on TV or they see others on TV, we speculate as to what their life looks like. Mm -hmm. And the truth is like maybe 4% of the union is those, are those like rich celebrities that don't have to work a day in their life. The rest of everybody else are basically gig workers. And the mm -hmm. work really is trying to get the next job. That's when you're like the busiest. That's why I think multi-hyphenating is so important because it eliminates the gig life. It, it eliminates that. You find, you figure out a way to create an income using your art form and your art form alone. It eliminates the for now job, the survival job. Like that's, you know, that was my intention with my photography business. You know, I'm a headshot photographer in New York and um, it allows me to produce projects. It allows me to audition. It allows me to write. It allows me to engage in art that I fully want to do. And, you know, some people really understand that. Some people are like, well, you're, you're one of a kind. I'm like, I'm not one of a kind. They're I'm fascinated though, with you being a photographer specifically for headshots, because when you said that I got so anxious, I haven't taken headshots in probably like three years. Come to the studio. The reason why I'm, I'm poor right now. I'm on strike, but the reason why is otherwise I would, um, I feel more vulnerable in that situation because it's very much who, who am I supposed to be right now? Um, I, I, I think that you get to experience a window into the artist in a way that's more vulnerable than if someone's just taking pics to look cute. And it's helped me with with the industry so much because it's helped me in my auditions. So like I I'm very open about this, but I I I'm a COVID long hauler. I wound up putting on a lot of weight during the pandemic, and I have never I put on thirty pounds. So I feel you. 
I love it. I mean, I, the thing is, is I've never been happier with my body ever mm-hmm. in my life in terms of how I look in terms of like, uh, just, just, I'm, 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 uh, mesmerized by how it helped me survive the, the being a COVID long hauler and what everything went through and that I'm still able to work and be present. And it helped me, you know, cut so much negativity out of my life. But in terms of how I look, I've never felt sexier or more confident in my life. But what I will say is it has also helped me figure out how to connect with the projects that I want to be with, uh, be doing as an actor. And since I went repless for a long time, mainly because I felt like I couldn't connect with myself, it was hard to share because it was like, there's things that I want to do, but I don't look like it yet, or I don't connect with it yet. Mm. And since I leaned into that and the roles that I want to play, um, I have rep now uh, that I, that get me, that get me into rooms that I'm, I'm fully committed to. And I've had, I haven't had an audition recently where I've been like, ah, that was not it. That room was, that was the wrong room. That was the wrong project. It did not feel good. I got this, you know, sometimes you get the sense of like, why are you here? I haven't had that in so long because I felt so confident in who I am and sharing and communicating with my team about the types of people I would like to portray. And it has been so much through understanding the industry from the perspective of a headshot photographer in terms of specificity, in terms of getting it out of other people, that it's become so clear for me. And it's made me a strong, and that in terms of multi-hyphenating, it's made me such a stronger actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how it cross-pollinates with me. It's made me such a stronger actor. It doesn't just allow me to audition, but it's made me a stronger artist overall, which has been really sort of wonderful. I love that. Yeah, I also feel like, you know, I'm 44 now and I feel like your body, your face changes and you start having more concerns about how you present yourself. I also feel like, you know, with a with a headshot, my resume says something. I don't have to worry about looking fabulous. People know I'm a homosexual. They already saw it on the resume, right? But what I do try to convey at this station in my career is I want one of those headshots that we see, and I'm just that we see like the Meryl Streep, the Matt Damon, a picture of them. The reason why is they're standing in their truth in a way that's not arrogant. It's just, this is who they are. Um, Like, I I feel like there's a strength that a lot of my previous headshots didn't have. They were either let me fuck you or let me fuck you up. It was (laughs) aggressive or like Latin lover. Those Mm. were the two archetypes that I photographed as thinking these are the two things I'm likely going to be able to book more of. I'm Latin, so I'm constantly going in for cartel, drug lord, like (laughs) all that is very up. And you'd be very gagged, which is a good thing. How many casting directors are like, oh, you don't even need to butch it up. Like, we're curious to see what if instead of a harem of men, you know, with machine guns, who you know are surrounded by female prostitutes? What if there are men around you with machine guns, and you've probably had sex with all of them? Like, what would that look like mm-hmm. if you're this cartel, either closeted or not? Like, what would it look like for him to be gay? Maybe not even using language. Maybe he's just a man who sleeps with men. Like, that's interesting to me to play mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, those kind of moments. But yeah, going back to the headshots, it's 
it's intimate and scary and I'm petrified and I know I'm due because mine are old, but like scary. Well, it's interesting because I think like everyone needs to headshots obviously evolve and change with the person. But I think when you're a younger, newer actor in the industry, I think you have to lean into the different, I don't want to say archetypes because I think that falls into negativity, but Mm. I definitely think that you definitely, how many times can I say definitely? I think that you absolutely should lean into all right well if i'm going into cindy tolan's office um and she's casting mazel well maybe i should definitely have something that leans period since since the world is in is 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 just now getting to know me and then your next shoot you start to be like all right what worked what didn't what am i getting called in for what's being filmed now that i'm being drawn to what rooms do i want to get into what casting directors have i met in the past two years what are they what are they casting now? What just figuring that out and then leaning into that. And then eventually you start to figure out, you know what? I'm in a place in the industry where they know who I am. I'm going to lean into my power and that is what I'm going to share. Yeah, and- like, you know, if they're casting the OnlyFans movie, what jock strap do I wear? Like, there's a lot of questions that we'd have. Right. Is it uh, Hans Christian Andersen, whatever, whatever his name? Uh, yes. Jock straps are very important when it comes to headshots. <laughs> I'll, I'll um, remember that for my next headshot. <laughs> but speaking of standing in your power or standing in your jock, jock straps, um, have I been in a jock strap at 54 below? I've been, I've had so many random nights at 54 below where I'm not wearing what I feel like I sh- I'm normally wearing. I love 54 below. It's one I've of my- I've never been. Oh my God. It's one of my- I've art- never been and I'm doing three nights there and I'm I'm terrified because I thought that's only for fancy people of which I do not- feel like I qualify so when they said we'd like to book you for three nights I was like who you know I was very shocked it was a bucket list item and I never thought I'd be I thought I'd have to beg to get in it was a pipe dream and here we are and it's just a couple weeks away and I'm I I can't believe it first of all AI here's the one thing about performers like the show's good like I know the show's good because I've I've workshopped so many pieces of it and so this is a 60 minute version of a 90 and I, it's solid. The beats are solid. The stories are great. The music, Drew Woodkey, like got oh, some great. Love Drew. We love Drew. And so now I'm going in like the show is good. My biggest fear, I'm not a Patty Lapone. Like, will anyone come? This is why we're doing a streaming option on the Friday that Orfe's guest starring in, because I'm like, even if people don't live in New York and they can't make it, they can maybe want to see it in nice HD 4K, whatever, for 25 bucks. That to me is like reminds me of the pandemic when every single day I was do makeup Mondays, trivia Tuesdays, uh, wig Wednesdays. I was basically multi hyphenating my, my, my streaming experience and living paying bills off the tips. I, it was so humbling. And mm-hmm. I remember someone saying to me, you're not embarrassed that like after this, people are not going to cast you in anything. And then immediately I get Bosch legacy bros uncoupled. And I was like, I guess not. I guess people <laughs> that we are not just one thing. And we, you know, with the strike, we found out that season one, the girls of Orange is the New Black all had regular jobs. Like they were working as bartenders while their show was on the air and one of the biggest shows on Netflix. So, you know, it's optics are important, but I think for me, like the show does talk about love, sex and intimacy. And it is, there is, I I got a message from an aunt and a cousin saying they're coming and I was like, 
I'm realizing now there might have to be a little thing at the top of the show that say the following content is intended for mature audiences only. <laughs> is advised because they're, you know, I, I recognize the sort of holiness of the uh, Broadway living room that 54 is, but also I want to speak freely and not in a crass way, but I do talk about sexuality, uh, my first hookup or sexual encounter, which did not, spoiler, did not go well, but is, I I'll, I'll say this. I told the story when it first happened, almost on the verge of tears when it happened. Over two decades later, it is the story I tell that consistently gets the most laughs where people can't breathe. So, you know, it is what it is, but um, I'm excited. You've been, um, I, maybe I will wear a jock strap. That feels right for the show, like under my garments, obviously, but yeah. that feels like it would give you, put me in the right state of mind, you know? I mean, you could, yep, no, sure. It would put the audience in a certain state of mind as well. Every I mean, person who buys a ticket and <laughs> grabs it and sends it to me via DM on Instagram, yeah. I will send you a picture of my <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Um, but no, I, I love 54 Below. It's such a, it's such a, I mean, it is such a classy joint and the programming is so, um, I don't mean to say diverse in terms of like, in terms of gender or in terms of of uh, ethnicity using it like that, but it is it, it is a di diverse calendar in terms of you'll get, um, uh, you'll, you'll get, you know, 54 sings celebrating a certain writer. And then you'll also get Patti Lapone, And then you'll also get uh, this new writer's music while the performances are also expansive in terms of gender and ethnicity and bodies and things like that. It is a really beautiful uh, place that I am proud to call it as an artistic home. I produce there, I perform there. Um, I was asked to do a pride show there two years ago that, Hey, if I could sell up the show, you could sell up the show. So don't you worry. And I'm the panicked, but, but I think mostly, I think here's the thing. I haven't been back to New York on a New York City stage in over 17 years. It's amazing. So it's almost like I'm saying, I know you think you knew me, or maybe you don't know me at all, but here's who I am today. And I don't want to do that in a way that's posturing or like, that feels like I'm trying to be a grown-up musical theater star, of which you know I used to be, but I'm, I, it's not my lived exi existence now. What I feel like I want to bring is cabaret to me has become the most intimate conversation or first date I've ever had with audiences. And I've gone into every show that I've done because I've been doing a bunch of cabaret stuff here on the West Coast with that intention. It's a first date, don't say too, too much, but give them enough to kind of pull them in and just be honest. Oftentimes when I've talked about love or sex or dating, I've talked about what happened to me. But what I didn't talk about was how I contributed to some of the problems that ultimately were formed in Dynamics, which there's a moment in the show where I explore that. And I like that. It's not necessarily like telling on myself, it's just being more honest mm -hmm. about all the colors that painted that, that moment in my, in my history. Um, and yeah, a piece of that is the sexuality, a piece of that is what it's like to be on this global queer show and having this sort of queer eye stigma of you were on that show and all the negative and positive that that came with. Um, even, you know, to this day, it's like, I can date someone and I'm going to have to have the queer or whatever, like entertainment talk. Mm. There's certain things in my life that are shiny, like 
red carpety, blah, 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 fancy celebrity. But that's literally like 5% of my life. The truth is I live in a really humble two bedroom, two bathroom in West Hollywood that's rent controlled, been here 14 years. I raise reptiles. Like I got Chris to get, you know, like I'm, I'm sort of a nerd. I'm a plant dad. Like there's literally plants everywhere. Like you can't really see it. So, so if you want the sparkle and you want to date me, you're going to be disappointed because I'm not the most charismatic. I tend to recede in big groups. I'm having fun. I just don't like to be the center of attention when I'm not being paid to do so. Like, I feel like that I use that energy appropriately, but I'm not the one who's the life of the party. Um, so, so I think this show kind of pulls back the mask a little bit. Of course I spill rent tea, queer IT. Um, and I'm really excited because the guest stars that agreed to this, by the way, dear listener, let me tell you something. When you're doing a show, they basically say, you should probably have some guest stars. And I'm like, okay, let me shoot for the moon. First person I asked, Orfe. Why? I was friends with Orfe and Andy back in the day. And we've always just followed each other. We have not seen each other hung out in years. I mean, probably easily, I want to say 17, 18 years. But we follow each other. We talk all the time in the DMs. And I recognize her star power as a human. And I'm like, look, like, I don't think I'm going to be able to get her, but I, I'm duetting each uh, night with a different guest star to I'll Cover You, the duet from Rent, which also is the title of the show, A Thousand Sweet Kisses, which was a lyric from there. So that's sort of one of the final songs. And I was so petrified that I did it over voice note. I was too scared to call. I was too scared to text. So I did it over voice note. She said yes, and that gave me a little confidence. Um, and then. Uh, when it came to Claiborne Elder, we've never met. I've just been a longtime fan. And I was like, what like, what are the odds? Like, he's gay, he's partnered, he's got a kid. I'm probably not even on his radar. Like, he's probably gonna say no. And so I I, you know, I ask him again, voice note, right? He says yes. And he's like, I normally say no to things like this, but this just feels like a moment, like I'm happy to do it. So now I'm thrilled. But then I have one final night. And, you know, I did, listen, I did ask like the Norm Lewis's of the world. Um, you know, I did, I did go for like big, um, iconic, who would have been my dream Collins. Um, and everybody was booked and blessed. And I had a list of people that I wanted to always, that I have a list of people that I always wanted to work with, but just life never put them in my path. And, um, Dan and Boyer was uh, someone that I did uh, Uncoupled with. He plays Neil's part or someone that Neil dates basically on Uncoupled. And I know that he's got a huge profess- professional on-camera history with, you know, Younger and some, so much of his other work. But I'm thinking there is, listen, he might be nice to me in the DMs, but like, what are the odds that he's going to, you know, do this with me? And so I again, send a voice note or, and I was like, <laughs> like, listen, I have this thing and you know, you're such a strong leading man. That's the energy I wanted. You don't, your balls are not as big as Orfe, which is why I asked her first. Um, but he was not only thrilled, but excited. And here's the other thing too. You can't do that song without the kiss. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to sound like, I don't want to Harvey Weinstein this moment. You know, like I'm nervous to tell people, hey, I'm giving you an honorarium of this amount of money to come do it. 
Um, this is the time commitment. This is where it falls in the show. And by the way, at the end, you have to kiss me. So bye, let me know. It's okay. <laughs> if you don't want to do it, it's totally fine. I totally understand. Thank you, bye. Like it just was so anxiety inducing, but everyone was like, Dan was like, I'll have my Altoids and chapstick ready. Like it was just really sweet because when you do these projects, I'm not doing a concert. I'm doing a cabaret, which right. means my job is to sing and tell stories that are authentic to me and in the most honest and vulnerable way. I would say the show makes you laugh, might make you cry, but definitely gonna make you blush. Um, and 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 I think that is, you know, taking songs from like Prince to um, Sarah Bareilles to Whitney Houston to you know musical theater hits from Wicked or Dear Evan Hansen, um, making that all work uh, in the Heights and making all of that come out of one person. I even do a country song because I did it as a joke. Well, actually, I'll tell you the story because it's in the show. I was, I moved to LA and people were like, you need to, you know, you need to like socialize if you go out certain different people than just West Hollywood. So I went to Oil Can Harry's, which is a gay two-stepping queer, like two-stepping place, country bar. Hi. Had a great time. Met a hunk, a hunk, a hunk of a man. And I was like, why does he like me? Like I'm super twinky, whatever. He was former Navy. Um, and so then shortly after we started dating. That was my part of the war effort. But anyway, we um, were together for like, I don't know, like <laughs> four and a half, five months. And he was a bartender and lost his job two months in. And I felt like he wasn't really trying hard enough to get another job. And I was like carrying the both of us for a minute. It was really getting uncomfortable and putting a strain on the relationship. And then at a left field, he was like, I'm going to start competing in karaoke competitions. And I really wanted to be supportive, but I had never heard him sing, never heard him sing around the house, whatever. So he went to one while I was away working and I was gone for like three weeks working on a project. I come back and he's now made it to the finals. So I'm like, this bitch must be good. Like he must be so good. We drive to oil can Harry's <laughs> he's wearing a country hat, a black t-shirt, Levi's, a big buckle and cowboy boots. He's got big Navy man arms with a tattoo right on the bicep. It's giving full Popeye fantasy. Hot. Yeah, hot so far, right? So, so far. He, gets, he gets on stage and he gives this speech about finding his person. And the whole bar starts looking at me because he's pointing at me. I'm sitting on a stool surrounded by his friends. And oh. in my show, I sing the song, which is Wanted by Hunter Hayes. When I tell you, he opened his mouth and was like, you know, I'm probably lost without you. I don't know what you do, what you do. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I, now the entire bar is staring at the guy from Queer Eye who like, who literally he can't sing. Everyone knows they're waiting to see what my face is going to do. He sees he's losing the audience. So he starts to take off his shirt. Now he's singing with great conviction, feeling himself up. He takes a bottle of water during this ballad and pours it on his chest and starts flexing whilst, I'm gonna put air quotes, singing. I have never been more humiliated in my entire life. It wasn't that he couldn't sing. It's that in his mind, he was going to finance his life now 
as a singer. You gotta get a gimmick. I, That's crazy. I was so, I've never had more egg on my face and getting out of that scenario, you have to come to the show to find out how I did it. But yeah. It was, it was wild, but that's how that country song. And I started talking to Drew about moments in my life that stand out about love, sex, and intimacy. And then we picked the songs. And I had just sung that song in another concert. And I sent him the footage. He's like, this fits you like a glove. Like who would have thunk a country song on a Puerto Rican, but here we are. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I love it. I love it. And it's just, it's a very unsuspecting and um, probably not predictable set list, which is part of being multifaceted and multi-hyphenated is being able to dip into all genres. It's what I did during my XL Cabaret. You know, I tried to do a little bit of everything. Jay, this is, thank you so much for coming on your multi-hyphenate. I mean, I can't wait to see your show. It's coming up at 54 Below on October 26th through the 28th. And uh, the, uh, the show is at 7 p.m. all three nights. The doors open at 5.30. And it's featuring Claiborne Elder and Orfe. And uh, and who else did you say? It was... Um... Ann M. Boyer, who um, people know probably from Younger. Right. Um, yeah. He also played Neil Patrick Harris's rebound relationship on Uncoupled. He's just like a TV Broadway yeah. leading man type. Lovely, amazing. He's the final night. We haven't gotten a flyer for him because he just confirmed this weekend. But I will say, if you're listening, you made it all the way to the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening. But most importantly, if you can't make it, you don't live in the area, whatever, just get yourself a streaming ticket, mm -hmm. get a bottle of wine, sit with your partner, roommate, girlfriend, spouse, friend, who knows? I don't know your life. And, and see the show. Um, don't bring the kitties. It's definitely not. Uh, it's more for a mature audience. But um, but thank you for allowing me to have this space with you because one of the biggest fears was I sent this email blast out when we first started. 54 Below gives you a list of Broadway uh, inclined interviewers and publications. And I think out of the 28 people that I emailed personally to get an interview, two responded. And it was so scary to try to find people that were willing to talk to me about the show, I think they were just like, I, I was hoping they were not gonna be like, oh, the queer eye guy thinks he's gonna try to come back to Broadway. I don't know. Um, but I was really, really just so happy that you wanted to chat. So thank you for allowing me to have this space to, you know, talk about my experience and, and being multi-hyphenated, but also, you know, plug the show. It's so interesting that you say that because I, <laughs> that's actually really interesting that you say that. I actually look at that as a plus because I feel that too much press um, gets, you get lost in the weeds, but finding yeah. the people that actually want to elevate and showcase your stories, um, it leads to better conversation, a more organic conversation. Um, I, cause I get those emails a lot from, you know, Broadway podcast network and, and I, and other press places as well. And I, I don't wind up, moving forward with them because they don't um they don't sort of reflect the multi-hyphenate um identity maybe if i had a podcast that was you know just dedicated to uh broadway performers or that would be a whole different story but this is a very niche business uh uh, experience and to have you sort of have this very specific career that not many people can relate to but it ends up in um in such an a wonderful 
performance career that is continuing on, but you're also creating these intimate uh, experiences for us to get to know you through Night of Song. It's all just wonderful. And I think it reflects the, the what the multi-hyphenate um, experience is all about. So thank you for coming on. And, yeah. uh, and it's also great to be Halloween weekend. So if you want to come in costume, do it. Fun. It's a pregame. It's seven to eight. Get Fine. a couple of things, come see some shows, get you right in the mood to go out and do what you got to do on a Friday, Saturday, or Thursday night. And bring your jock straps. Uh, if you think I wasn't serious, screen grab at J.A.I. Rodriguez on the Instagram. You show me you bought a ticket. That's what you're getting if you want it. <laughs> that's hysterical. And if anyone wants a picture of me in a jock strap, that... Sorry, no. It, it's Okay, so let's try... Anyway, bye! Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.